Well, good morning again. It's great to see you all. Thanks so much for gathering here this morning on this chilly summer day in Florida. Um, but grateful that you guys are here. Uh, if we've never met before, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. So thanks so much for being the church, for bringing the church into this space. For those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thank you uh, for inviting us into your living room, dining room. Some of you I know are out camping and you're inviting us wherever you happen to be. So thank you. Uh, it's good to be able to connect in multiple ways. Uh, this morning, I'm excited to continue in our series called uh, Peaks and Valleys as we're looking at over a, a six-week time period as we get ready for our fall launch, looking at just various Psalms. And this series title is just emblematic, right? Of the fact that yes, in life we have peaks and valleys and you probably experienced that even just in this past week alone, some things that you're celebrating, but also some things that have been hard and difficult and probably some things that were expected, some things that were unexpected, some of the surprises. And so how do we navigate this? And one of the great resources that we have, certainly the entirety of scriptures, but man, the Psalms in particular just have a way of, of speaking to us with this, this poetry. It causes the, the heart to just sort of resonate with, oh, here's somebody that like that they get it. Like there's this companionship that we have in the Psalms. And so this morning, as we continue, we're gonna be in Psalm 84 this morning. And so if you have a Bible, please turn there. You can scan the QR code in your pew uh, th this morning. It'll bring up a thing that says sermon notes and uh, you can click that and find the text there, or you can always go to thisiscp.church. So whether you brought a Bible, using a Bible that's in the, the pew, but I wanna go ahead and read this so we hear it in its uh, entirety. Um, so if you would, if you're able, please stand and join me as I read God's word. Miss being with you all last week. Grateful to be able to gather. Thank you to Rusty for preaching last week. Got to catch part of the live stream last week. It just sounded great. Looking forward to listening to the, the rest of it as well. So hear now God's word out of Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools and they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, friends, this Psalm in particular, I don't know if you heard this, but as I was reading through it, at the end of verse four, uh, it speaks of this blessed life or this blessing. And then again, as verse five starts, it speaks of blessing. And then there at the conclusion to the Psalm in verse 12, it speaks of blessing. And I think this is a way for us to sort of approach this whole Psalm that it really helps orient us, helps guide us. You could say it serves as sort of a, a compass for us 
to help us understand uh, what does it look like sort of as our guide to the blessed life. Like it speaks so clearly in these particular verses about what we are invited to, what it looks like to have. Now by blessed life, you'll see in a moment too, this doesn't mean a life where everything just goes swimmingly, right? And it's all, all amazing and it's all rainbows all the time, right? It, no, no, we're talking about in the hard things, how do you still know that God is good, that he is with you? What, that's the blessed life. In fact, it's an invitation. There's this theme here about what does it mean to actually come home? to that place of home, of deep, rest. Maybe even for some of you this morning, like when you picture that, you're like, oh yeah, what does it mean to come home? Like something very clearly comes to mind and you think of just a, a warmth and a, and a welcome and a place where you don't have to perform or pretend and you're just loved for who you are. And for some of you, you're, you're like, that sounds amazing, but that's not how I picture home. I and mean, maybe there's a, such a brokenness that you're like, man, that, I, I long for that. Well, the longing itself speaks to a deeper reality, that the fact that even if it isn't your reality, and it's none of our realities perfectly, it does speak to the fact that that, that longing should point us somewhere. It should tell us that there is a home that is created for us, that there's this place of deep belonging and what it actually means to have this blessed life. And so this Psalm in particular, we're gonna kind of focus in on these really what are three sections and at the conclusion of these sections, there's this word that is repeated. Maybe it was in your Bible as I read it. I didn't say it, but it says Selah. And there's debate as to what it actually means. And it can be a musical term because these were songs that were sung. But most think at least it's an invitation to just stop, to slow down, to pause, to consider. And so I want us to look at three things I see in the, this text this morning that we might pause, that we might consider. It's not an exhaustive list of what it means to have the blessed life, but I think it's three significant things that if we would pause, if we would say lie, if we would just slow down enough to allow God to speak to us through his word, I believe it would be transformative in our lives. And so as we get into this this morning, we'll look at the first four verses. This is the first, the first section, what precedes the first sort of Selah, this first invitation to stop and to, and to consider. And so the first thing that we see right out of the gate is this invitation really, or I would say this, uh, this advice almost, like we need to direct our passion. We need to direct, rightly direct our desires. The psalmist and the Psalms in general and the Bible in general, right? They don't speak of squelching desire or passion. And so if that's a version of Christianity that you've been taught of like, we're Stoics and we, we, we're doing, you know, there's no peaks and valleys and you just stay like this. Like that's just not the, the human reality, right? And we are given particular passions and desires. There are things that, that stir us, they evoke something in us. They wake us up to certain things. And that's a good thing. And yet, if those desires and passions are not rightly oriented, we can find ourselves not living the blessed life, but living a life that's centered on self. And it leads us away from what God would have for us. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this in Mere Christianity. It's a quote that over the years we've come back to as a church, but I think it's helpful because it so beautifully encapsulates this idea of passions and of desires, how we're created with them, but they're meant, friends, to be redirected. In fact, they're meant to sort of point us to a deeper and truer reality. Hear Lewis's words here. He says this, 
creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. Lewis says, if I find in myself a desire though, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Are you tracking with what he's saying here? Like these things, they're meant to point us like, oh, if there's actually some desire that's awakened in us, some passion, but we actually don't find like uh, something here to satisfy it. It's not meant to discourage us, but it's rather to redirect us and say, oh, it's pointing to the truer reality. In fact, every single passion and desire that you and I have, they're not meant to terminate on themselves. That's what Lewis is gonna speak of but rather they're meant to be pointers or signifiers to like, oh, you were made for something more. That's what the psalmist is getting into here. Here are the rest of this quote from Lewis. He says this, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Friends, this is our invitation this morning that we would be people that would have our passions rightly directed. That's what the psalmist is getting at saying, you want the blessed life, like that passion, those desires that you have, are they rightly oriented to what is actually going to satisfy? Will we make it the main object of our life? Because to the extent that it gets snowed under or pushed aside, we get distracted with all kinds of good desires and passions, but they ultimately don't satisfy. Those things are meant to point us to what is ultimately true. So this is what the psalmist says. He starts out by saying, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. The psalmist is away from the temple and he's thinking about going to Jerusalem. This is a a psalm really of like a pilgrimage. We'll get into that theme a bit more in the next section, but he starts by just saying, I remember it. I remember the temple. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. The one who's in command of all things. And it's not just lovely that it's aesthetically pleasing and beautiful, though all of that is true. We get caught up in that beauty. You and I, beauty is not frivolous. We actually need to encounter beauty, part of how we're created. So on one level, yes, it's lovely, but at another level, it could be translated like, you are loved, the beloved, like, oh my goodness, like you, there's so much affection for you. That's the longing that the psalmist has. And then verse Two says this, that my soul longs. Think about it. How many of us would use this sort of language? I mean, this is very intimate, personal, vulnerable sort of language to kind of air this out and be like the one thing, like what my soul has been longing for all week, yes, faints. Like I'm so caught up in this, I'm literally about to faint. It says, for the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist longs to be with the people of God in the presence of God, singing praise to the God of the universe. Friends, what a gift it is that we're getting to do what we're doing right here. Like, let's not miss this. This isn't just the space, right, where we come in and hopefully take in some information that we can go apply it 
at other times in life. No, no, this is a gift that we have to encounter the presence of the living God together through the songs that are sung, through the liturgy that we engage in, through the meal we're gonna participate in, through the proclamation of his word, through prayer, through all of it. And so the psalmist is literally saying like, my soul, like that's what it was created for. It longs for that. I'm about to faint just thinking about it. Now I'm sure that was the drive over on the way to church this morning, right? Like, woo, just, I'm about ready to faint. I can't wait to get there. But at a truest level, it's like, yeah, like the thing that we're made for is like what we're doing right now. And so the psalmist is inviting us to consider that. And then I love where the, the psalmist goes in verse three, he, he has this recollection of, of being there at the temple and there's, the, there's different sections to the temple and we don't have to get into all that, but there's the outside courts. And he remembers that, oh, even the birds, even the sparrows, this seemingly insignificant little bird had a place to build a nest, maybe thinking up kind of up in the, the corners, right? Perhaps there are some living in the rafters here. Who knows? We never know what's gonna happen in here, right? But like the, the psalmist says this, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. And so it's just this reminder at one level, the psalmist is like, man, I'm jealous of that. I, I long to be where the birds are. And yet those of us that know the story of Jesus, and we know what the psalmist like long to see, like that, is, that has happened. And we know that Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 speaks of the sparrow. And it's this reminder that even like a sparrow doesn't even fall to the ground without the Lord being sovereign over that. Like how much more so is he dialed in and aware of your life and everything you brought in here this morning? And that if he cares for the sparrow, friends, I mean, he cares so deeply for you. And there's this other sense as well that as he reflects on the birds and he thinks about this, it's like, oh, at one level, they know where to go. Like they go to the temple. How often do we spend our lives just busier? As Lewis said, things just get snowed under. We didn't intend to get distracted. We didn't intend to go like days and months and or weeks and, and months and, and find ourselves in a spot of just spiritual dryness. But sometimes that's where we end up because we lose focus. It's like, oh man, let the birds even just be a reminder. They know where to go, right? Let us be like them. And then this line though, amidst the beauty and the, the, the Psalm is saying, how lovely is the temple. It says at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And we will get into this further, but the psalmist also has an awareness of the fact that yes, the temple, it was beautiful, it was magnificent. People would travel from miles and miles away to come and be there, particularly for these festivals. There's one likely the psalmist is thinking about. And yet the psalmist is aware that the only way we get to be in the presence of God is if there's forgiveness for sins, which is going to entail a shedding of blood. And so we think of altar and we think of it in a very sanitized sort of modern Western sort of way. We might even speak of like the altar at church, right? Um, but this friends, I mean, this is a bloodbath. This is a place where animal after animal after animal is being slaughtered and sacrificed, make atonement for, for, to bring forgiveness of sins. And then each year they've got to come back and they've got to keep repeating the, these things and on and on it goes. And so there's this longing to be in the presence of God. There's a recognition though that we can't be because of our sin. And all of this friends, because the Bible's telling one story about Jesus from beginning to end, we're gonna to get to see how God in his kindness and his grace 
makes it so that there is one final altar. And there's this forgiveness that is possible so that we can be in the presence of God. In verse four, then here's that blessed word again. We get introduced to it for the first time here in the text. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. This is the blessed life, friends. Do we see it that way? Will we pay attention to our passions and desires and allow them not to terminate on themselves, but to point us to what is true, what is good and true and beautiful, what is the ultimate reality? Blessed are those who dwell in your house. So that's the first thing. And then there's that invitation, Selah. Would we pause? Would we consider? Would we not just rush off to the next thing? I would encourage you like right here, right now, like even in the midst of what you're dealing with, and the thoughts that are racing through your minds and the quietness of where you're sitting, even to invite the Holy Spirit. So like, allow me to ponder this. Allow me to consider this. Allow me to just rest in your truth. As we move through the text, then we see this call then not only to pay attention to our passions, but to embrace, there is a process. Embrace the process. Look with me at verses five to eight. Again, here's this invitation to blessedness. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. It's not a strength in ourselves. It's a strength in us that is in the Lord, not in ourselves. So that's the place of blessing. In whose heart are the highways in Zion? Zion is another way to say the temple, Jerusalem. It's it's where the psalmist longs to be. Now that this particular verse that you see there is out of the ESV. It's the version and translation of the Bible that we have here in the pews and what I'm preaching from but it's helpful to oftentimes read other translations uh, as well. They sometimes nuance things a little bit differently or help unpack a phrase. And in the NIV translation, the first line is identical. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. But in this line about in whose hearts are the highways in Zion, they get translated this way, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And I think that's a helpful way for us to think about this as we are created to be in the presence of God. We need to stop and consider that this whole thing, it's not about a quick fix. It's not about just a a, a spiritual mountaintop and some sort of spiritual high, but it is the totality of the ebb and flow, the peaks and valleys. We're talking about spiritual discipleship. We're talking about a pilgrimage. We're talking about a journey. And the psalmist knows that he has to go on this particular journey to go be in the presence of the Lord. And it is a image, it's a metaphor of sorts for us to consider like, hey, everything in our spiritual life is a process. The world offers us quick fixes and solutions to things, right? But apprenticeship to Jesus looks very, very different. Apprenticeship to Jesus is not about just like the life hacks, right? Like everywhere you look, pay attention to this this week. Over and over again, you will be bombarded, right? Whether it be on advertisements, on the radio, things that show up in your, your feed on social media, right? Things that show up in a, you know, as you're just Googling something or watching TV. Over and over again, it's the quick fix. It's this life hack. It's just do this and you'll be more efficient and your life will go just amazingly well. And then we import that same stuff because it's not just out there. We think it's gonna be in the realm of our discipleship to Jesus. And friends, that's just not how it works. It's this long, slow, arduous process. It's why there's this this invitation to go and to set our hearts and it's like a pilgrimage. And we're journeying and we're not doing it in isolation. We are journeying together whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Do we pay attention to that? 
I don't think we like that. I think we want the quick fix. Sometimes we show back up at church after having been away for a while and it's because we're like, oh, maybe this will be the thing that quickly fixes it. And friends, the invitation to the blessed life is to journey with Jesus, with his people. I don't know how many of you recognize this person in this photo. Um, Some of you sports fanatics might. Um, This is the legendary coach, John Wooden. John Wooden coached the UCLA Bruins uh, for a number of years, I think maybe late 40s through like the maybe mid to late 70s. Um, He's regarded as, by some, the greatest uh, coach ever, all right? Um, Certainly regarded as the greatest uh, college basketball coach ever. Um, And there was a time as he was coaching the UCLA Bruins um, that in 12 seasons, they won the NCAA uh, championship, all right? They won it 10 out of 12 years. Like, that's not bad, right? That kind of shows, oh yeah, he's a pretty good coach. In fact, one point during that stretch, they won seven consecutive years, Like we think it's a big deal when a sports team happens to repeat. They win back-to-back years and that's a huge accomplishment. Imagine, oh, that's cute that you did that for two years. No, we did it for seven and then won 10 out of 12. So this guy's like next level coach, the recruits he would bring in. All right, some people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that he coached, Bill Walton, some some of these like legendary, went on to be legendary NBA players. But what is so fascinating, if you know anything about his life, all right? Even if you're not into sports, I think you'll still appreciate this as we think about process, as we think about journey, as we think about the deliberateness of the slow, methodical, oftentimes overlooked things of life. So every year as they would gather for their first practice, the sophomores, the juniors, the seniors, they would await this moment where the coach would blow the whistle, Coach Wooden would blow the whistle and he would call over the freshmen. And there was a smirk kind of on the faces of those who were the non-freshmen, not because there was gonna be some sort of hazing thing that happened, it was nothing like that. But they knew though, that these freshmen were in for a big surprise because they had all been through it the year prior, the years before that. And so can you imagine, here are these prized recruits, the best of the best from their high schools getting invited by Coach Wooden to come play for the UCLA Bruins to help continue this streak of championships, to keep this legacy going, right? And so they're thinking, man, like I can't wait to get on the court. Hopefully he will coach me in such a way that I can get some insights or I can at least, maybe I can show how dominant I am, how they should be, you know, glad to have me here. Maybe they're just ready for that first day to just like, all right, I'm here for all your wisdom, right? Coach Wooden, what have you got for me? You're legendary, right? Like, teach me, I'm here, I wanna just soak it in. And literally the first thing that Coach Wooden would do with the new freshman is he would have them take off their shoes. And he would have them take off their socks. And then he would look at them and say, gentlemen, I'm here to teach you how to properly put on a sock. And he would begin to show them how he desired for them in a particular way to roll the sock up and then roll it slowly up their foot and make sure that there's no wrinkles or anything. Now, can you imagine the freshmen are like, what kind of, where's the layup lines and the shooting drills and the free throws and the practicing boxing out, right? And our press cover, like like where's all the things that we should be strategizing about and all the real basketball stuff. And after they learned to put a sock on, he would say, okay, now get your shoes, put your shoe on and I'm gonna teach you to properly tie your shoes. They, they had to have been thinking like, dude, I'm not four. Like, I know how to do this. Like, I've been doing this for a long time now. Like, you brought me all the way across the country to come, you know, be a recruit here so you could teach me how to put on my socks and shoes. Like, we're good. Let's move on to the other stuff. 
But as the upperclassmen would later explain to those confused freshmen, they would say, no, no, he cares about every last detail because he knows you get a blister, you're out of the game. He knows your shoe comes untied at an inopportune moment in the, in the heat of the, the game, the battle, like you might have to, to go out. So like everything matters. And for Coach Wooden, it started, it was a process. You could say it was this basketball sort of pilgrimage that he was taking them on and nothing was to be overlooked, that everything mattered down to the smallest detail of how you put your socks on before practice or before a game and how you tie your shoes. And friends, what this is driving at here, this text is like, we are on a pilgrimage. There's no quick fixes. Nothing is to be overlooked. You are in an apprenticeship, if you're a Christian, to Jesus. There's a way of Jesus. What does it look like to follow him and all that he has for us? That's the blessed life. Not off doing what we wanna do, right? Not being like, oh, I got this or I know how to do this. Let's allow Jesus to teach us because he has much to teach us in this pilgrimage. And the moment we think we've got it, we're God's gift, we've, we've figured out, no, no, no. We're operating in a posture that's not humble, it's not ready to learn. Like to be a disciple at its core means to be a learner. Are we willing to submit ourselves and say, Jesus, I don't know anything. You're Jesus. Why don't, why don't you teach me? You need to show me how to put my socks on, right? What's the spiritual equivalent? I'm all in. Will you teach me? There's this apprenticeship to Jesus. And then the, it continues. So we got this journey imagery. And then verse six, it says this, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rains also cover it with pools. It's a way of describing that in the journey, in the pilgrimage, in the arduous, in the details, in the mundane, in the like step after step after step in this process, you are going to go through the valley. You are going to go through the desert places. That's the reference here. He's saying, you go through this. And yet, did, did you notice this? It's not just that you have to traverse it, that that is true, right? We, we go through it. Some of you are in that spot right now. You're like, man, no, I, like, I know the valley. I know the barrenness. I know the desert. Like, I know that landscape. That's all I'm feeling lately. And yet, it's not just that he tells us we go through that. Did you see what happens? It says they make it a place of springs. So not just isolated individuals, but they on a pilgrimage together, what it is saying is that when you and I have our passions rightly oriented towards the presence of God to give him praise, as we are a worshiping community together, there's a transformative praise that begins to happen. And so you think about the cultural moment that we're in right now, right? I'm sure I could sit down with you and we could probably all rattle off a number of things that are like, well, this is wrong and this is wrong. We need to change this and this and that. Listen, those may all be 100% true. But what if as the church, we stopped just critiquing everything that's going on and rather paid attention to verse six that says, oh, we're called to be a people on a journey together. And it's a journey of transformative praise because that's the thing that's gonna turn the barrenness of the secular landscape into a place of flourishing and of delight. Because apparently that's what happens when the people of God journey together towards the presence of God, praising God, even in the midst of the valley. Like it brings change and transformation. Maybe that's what the culture needs is the church less on their critique mode and on our soapboxes and more as us being like, hey, we're praising God. We're praising him on the mountaintop. We're praising him in the, the valley and we're journeying together. We're on this pilgrimage, this apprenticeship to Jesus and watch what he does through that. One of the best stories I know of to help us think through this transformational praise 
is the, the story. I'm, I'm guessing many of you are familiar with this. You've either heard of it or you perhaps you've read it. Uh, I want to read to you an excerpt from uh, this book, um, The Hiding Place. Perhaps you're familiar with this story. In this particular account, you have, it's written by Corey Tenboom. It's a story that she records. A lot of the details are about her and her, her sister, Betsy. Um, but it's this Dutch family uh, living in the time of Nazi occupation. Um, and her family goes to great lengths to protect Jews that were being persecuted. And they would literally provide that hiding place. They would welcome them into their home and they would protect them from Nazi soldiers. But eventually uh, the family is found out. And so the family is sent off to concentration camps, Nazi concentration camps. And uh, by God's grace, Betsy and Corey end up in the same concentration camp together. Horrible that they're having to go to this, but the grace of God that they would be together in this. And friends, when we think about like the, the valleys, the deserts, there's nothing obviously easy, but there's transformative praise. Like I, I, want, I want to read you this section because it speaks so profoundly of what happens, not just as isolated individuals, but when a community begins to form in the midst of the most horrific things, the transformation that can begin to take place. So here's the excerpt. She describes showing up at this concentration camp, she says, we lay back struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. They've been brought into their barracks, okay? Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Ah, fleas, I cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. Here and here another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly that it took me a second to realize that Betsy was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she exclaimed excitedly, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer. Before we asked, as he always does, in the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. And so I glanced down the long dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight, then drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. So in the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed written expressly to Ravensbrook, the camp, concentration camp they were in. Well, go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh yes, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. And we can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her. Then around me at the dark, foul aired room. Such as, I asked. Well, such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh yes, Lord Jesus. And, and such is what you're holding in your hands as I, I look down at the Bible. Yes, and thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Look what's happening. Praise being redirected, right? I mean, being directed, like even when it's the pain, like they're, they're directing their praise towards God. Yes, said Betsy, thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely for the flea and for the, the fleas. 
This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. As she continues, she picks the story back up. She describes, there's a bit of a section where it describes that what began to transpire was that uh, the barracks that they were in, there was this large center room and they began holding their Bible study. So much so that the number of women that came to the Bible said they, they were running out of room, even though it was the largest room. So they started a second service. Pretty amazing, right? Hey, we'll just, we'll go multi-service here in this concentration camp, right? That's what they did. But they always wondered why, like, why did the, like, how were they actually able to do this? How was God protecting them in this? And this is where the story picks back up. It says that these, these uh, they were services like no others, these times in barracks 28. At first, Betsy and I called these meetings with great timidity, but as night after night went by and no guard ever came near us, we grew bolder. So many now wanted to join us that we held a second service after evening roll call. We were under rigid surveillance, guards in their warm wool caps, capes marching constantly up and down. It was the same in the center room of the barracks, half a dozen guards or camp police always present. Yet in the large dormitory room, there was almost no supervision at all. And we did not understand it. One evening, I got back to the barracks late from a wood gathering foray outside the walls. A light snow lay on the ground and it was hard to find the stacks, the sticks and twigs with which a small stove was kept going in each room. Betsy was waiting for me as always, so that we could wait through the food line together. And her eyes were twinkling. Well, you're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we've never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room, she said. Well, I've found out. That afternoon, she said, there'd been confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes, and they'd asked the supervisor to come and settle it. But the Nazi supervisor wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, neither would the guards. And you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. And my mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. And I remembered Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. This is a story of incredible, horrific pain, tragedy, loss. And yet there's this transformative praise that is happening in the midst as they take God seriously in the command to rejoice in all circumstances. Like, now, just hear me on this. Like, I do not do that, right? Like, I, there's nothing in me that just naturally wants to rejoice in all circumstances. I get annoyed far too easily, get upset far too easily, right? I'm like five minutes back from a vacation and like somebody cuts me off in traffic on 436 and I'm like, oh, I hate this whole place. True story that happened last night, right? Like that's actually, like that's where my heart goes. And yet an apprenticeship to Jesus, would we trust him? Hey, how about you give thanks in all circumstances? What if bit by bit we started to become that sort of community, the dryness, the barren land, the desert landscape? What, what kind of blooming what kind of flourishing might take place if the church became what she's called to be of this transformative community of praise, this transformational praise began to take place. It tells us then that we would go, they go from strength to strength as one, each one appears before God in Zion. Bit by bit, 
It's not all at once. It's from strength to strength. It's, it's why the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 speaks of our spiritual growth and just says it this way. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. Not from one to a hundred degrees, but one degree after another, bit by bit. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. How does that happen? It says, beholding the glory of the Lord, worshiping together, worshiping the Lord together, beholding Jesus and not circumstances. We're not ignoring circumstances, but we're using them as an opportunity to say, okay, God, you must have something for me in this. I can't see it. It's why we need one another because some of you are gonna help me believe in the times when I'm doubting. And hopefully we all come alongside one another and say, hey, help me. I, I, I wanna help you behold Jesus. You need to help me behold Jesus. And as that happens from one degree of glory to another, and then the psalmist ends this section with the next day, oh Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob. And as the psalm comes to a close, let's look at this. As we remember that it is this journey, we're called to, to sing praise, that that would be what brings transformation. Our ultimate desire is to be home, to be home in the Lord, to see people join in this worship, that this is the place where transformation happens as we praise God together. This is why what we're doing is so important here this morning. Not in some legalistic way of like, you should never miss church, but, but in a, things flow out from this. Like it redirects us. It kind of recalibrates our hearts about what is ultimate, what is true. What are the things to focus on? And so we get this invitation to abide in the presence of the Lord. Verse nine says, so behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. We'll come back to that in a moment. But that word anoints is what get translated as Messiah. And so for the psalmist, the psalmist is speaking of like, Lord, we know you've given a, a king here, all right? He's your anointed one. He's your representative here. But friends, we know the truer, fuller story. We know about the ultimate king. We know about the truly anointed one. We know about the Messiah that came. And it's that that allows what the psalmist says next. And we sang it just a, a few minutes before this sermon even began, right? These words, for day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalmist is saying, I wanna be at the temple. I wanna be in the presence of the Lord. Literally, I would give up anything to be there. Like you think about the greatest trip you've ever been on, the place that you would just love to go back to. And the psalmist is saying, I would take one day in the presence of the Lord with the people of God singing the praises of God over that thing for a thousand days. You're like, ah, you're just being hyperbolic. No, he's, being, he's speaking to what is most true in this world. He's saying, that's what I want. Does your heart desire that? Is that is what is on offer here? And he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That, I just wanna be there. I don't care what my role is. I don't care if, I, if it's overlooked, if it's, if it's not prominent. I just, I just wanna be there with the people of God in the presence of God, worshiping God together. Now, what's so glorious about this is we begin to see, right? The invitation when Jesus comes on the scene. Do you remember his encounter as he stands outside of the temple? All right, in John chapter two, and he says this crazy line. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Friends, the only way that you and I can spend time in the courts and to know it as better and to know it, to actually experience that is because what Jesus said here in John chapter two is true that he looked out over this huge, massive temple and he said these words. He's like, hey, 
destroy it, be rebuilt in three days. And they thought he was talking about the physical structure, but he was talking about what? He's talking about himself. The temple was the place where God and humanity could meet. And Jesus is saying, oh, that now happens not in this physical edifice, not in this temple made by hands. It happens in me. I'm the new temple that has shown up. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the truly anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I am the new temple. And you get to be in the presence of God through me, through my life, through my death, through my resurrection. That's what's on promise here. And so it's with that then, as we see the psalmist say, for the Lord, God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor. It's all by God's grace. Jesus, in gra- by his grace, like he came, right? he offered us grace by dying for us dying in our place, dying the death that I deserve, that you deserve, that the temple, his body was rebuilt three days later, that there's resurrection, he raised it up. And then I love this, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If the call there is to walk perfectly, it's like, well, then I know I'm not in, but Jesus walked perfectly. He walked uprightly. He did all the things and all of his righteousness is transferred to me. There's no good thing that the Lord is withholding from you. Even in the midst of hardship, the Lord is doing a work and he's inviting us to trust him. How can we give thanks in all situations? Would we look to the words of Romans chapter eight, verse 32, that says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's not withholding. No good thing does he withhold because he gave us his son. May we remember that. May that transform us into a community that gives praise, not just when circumstances are going well, but in all situations. And in those times, I'll close with this, friends, where we do an honest assessment of how we're doing in this. Like, oh, I don't give praise the way that I should. I, I don't do this. I complain. I grumble. I'm just looking for the spiritual life hacks. That's, that's, that's basically what I'm committed to, Right the shame that we carry. I read these words a few days ago and I was so encouraged by them. I wanted to share them from this book, How to Inhabit Time. Hear this contrast between shame and grace and know you are invited into the story of grace. Shame is a nefarious enemy of grace that thrives on the backward glance. Shame keeps craning our necks to look at our past with downcast eyes as a life to regret. There are highly spiritualized forms of this vexation that parade themselves as holiness. But in fact, this is the antithesis to grace. Shame lives off off the lie of spiritual self-improvement, which is why my past is viewed as a failure. Grace, however, lives off the truth of God's wonder-working mercy. My past, my story is taken up into God and God's story. And God is writing a new chapter of my life not starting a new book after throwing out the first draft of my prior existence. Shame denies that our very being is possibility, whereas grace by nature is futural. Grace is the good news of unfathomable possibility. That's the story you're invited into. That's why this psalmist can conclude and say, oh Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts you. Will you trust the Lord? Will you abide in Jesus? He is the vine, we are the branches. We're invited to trust in him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for forming us and making us into a community of praise. God, we struggle, we fail all the time, but we thank you that through your spirit, you are at work and that you are forming us and you're shaping us and you're helping 
take our next, we wanna crane and, and look back towards our shame and regret and you're, you're turning them so that we might behold you and your glory and your grace. And in that space, we are transformed. We're being transformed and thank you You've not given up on us. Thank you that you continue to pursue us. Thank you for giving us reason to praise. You've withheld no good thing. We have you, Jesus. We, we get to be in the presence of God. And so we thank you for that reality. May we celebrate that now, God, so that you would get the glory that you deserve. And may we experience just a deep and abiding joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.